Hello. My microphone was off. That is horrible. Uh, I apologize. I'm going to start over and then we're gonna, we're gonna see what happens. Okay. So welcome back to Between Meals Apologetics podcast where we talk about everything Bible. Um, I'm your host, Pastor George Gray, and I'm saying all this all over again. Um, so we're gonna be starting back up on the, on uh, the 2021 season. I'm actually very thankful to be here. Um, uh, and even more thankful that it, occasionally I even look down to see if things are working correctly. Um, so I wanted to start today by answering a quick question, and that was, why am I no longer streaming on Facebook through Facebook Live? Why is it just live on YouTube? And the answer is actually very simple. Um, if I spread this out on multiple platforms, then neither of the platforms actually grow. Uh, so in order to grow a digital ministry like this, you really have to bring everything back to a single platform where that's all your all of your views. Views are. Um, it's not, it's unfortunate, but that's just the way it works. The algorithms are not in your favor if all of your views are spread out over multiple platforms. So that is why we're doing this the way we are doing this. So um, let's see. Uh, so. But, after I'm done, the video will be added to my Facebook page, um, but it will always link back here to YouTube. So if you want to help support the channel, um, click like and subscribe and make sure you share these and hopefully we'll see what God does in the future because um, really the entire purpose of this channel is simply to help you grow in your faith and your understanding of God's word and its application in your life. So um, let's see enough commercials let's get into t to tonight's topic and uh what we're going to be doing um is focusing in on the authority of God's word now i've been a christian now for 27 years i've been been preaching for probably 25 or 26 of those i've been a pastor for the last 11 years i was an assistant for multiple years before that i've i've had the opportunity to to teach and uh uh for a long time and sit under some amazing teachers. And one of the things that has been really being impressed onto me, uh, on my heart and on my, um, on my conscience and, and just, just move as we move into this new year really is the authority of God's word and, and how much that has really deteriorated within the church really here in the United States. Um, and when I say the authority of God's word, I, I'm, I'm speaking pretty simply, um, and that the, the idea is, is the Bible your source for what is right and wrong, moral or immoral, true and false? Uh, you know, have you dedicated, dedicated your life to learning and living what the Bible says? Uh, it's really easy to say, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I want to go to church. It's a completely different thing to say I have devoted my life to learning and understanding and applying the word of God. Those are two, they can be two very opposed topics. So over the years, what I've, uh, I've run into a lot of Christians who will say things like, I love Jesus. And I don't doubt that. I, ne I never will. Um, but they've been Christians for a long time. This is usually the way this, this ends up working. They've been Christians for a number of years, and they have no idea what God's Word says. Uh, they go to church, they have a Bible, but the study and the pursuit of God's Word really isn't something that is significant to their lives. Um, and this becomes very, very problematic in the life of a Christian, especially in days like today with things that are going on in the world that is around us right now. Now, if you think about this, you run into someone who's been a Christian for a long time, and they have no idea how to describe salvation. They don't know how to talk to people about sin and repentance. We don't like talking about sin because it's offensive. That means you've done something wrong. Uh, but in reality, that is what sin is. It's a violation of the law of God, and we've, 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 we've created a rift between us and our Heavenly Father, and Jesus is here to repair that rift, and so we have to understand what this thing is so we understand how to live it. Um, now, this is 
you know, I've, and there's even some people who believe that, that as long as you're a good person, you know, you mean well, you go to church, you give a little money and things like that, and you're a good person, you know, you've never killed anybody, you never robbed a bank or anything like that, then, you know, you'll still go to heaven. Um, and this is all inside the church. This isn't outside the church. This is people inside the church. You also have entire denominations in our country right now teaching that lifestyles that are condemned by God, that are condemned by his word, are suddenly okay now. Like, you know, the church had it wrong for a few thousand years, but now because we're so enlightened today, now we figured out that what God said was wrong before, he didn't really mean was wrong today. Um, that doesn't really make sense because it doesn't make any sense. Alongside of that, you have high-profile ministers teaching and preaching things like I'm going to show you some video clips here, uh, like that we need to let go of the Old Testament. Uh, let's see. Here you go. Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well. And I'll tell you why. It's actually the same reason they did. Because we must not make it difficult for those Gentiles who are turning to God. That's not only ungodly, it's also not even remotely true. If you read the rest of that passage, they didn't unhitch their faith in the Jewish scriptures. That's what they taught the entire time they were they were they were ministering. You know, you got people teaching that Jesus didn't come to earth to bring salvation. He came to bring the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's a clip, uh, another, another clip for you. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God's upon you. Why? So you can get totally well and everyone with you gets well. For what reason? So you can rebuild ruined cities. I'm pointing out that the gospel is about, it's not the gospel of salvation, it's the gospel of the kingdom. We weren't supposed to go everywhere preaching salvation, which is good, but how I many know salvation is onto something bigger? Salvation is the entrance into the kingdom. So Jesus stepped out of heaven, walked the earth, went to the cross so that we could build cities, not to bridge the gap between creator and creation, to repair the damage of sin so that we could come before God with a pure heart. Enter into eternity? There's something very wrong about that. How about this one? That Jesus had to be born again. That Jesus, the Son of God, had to be born again. I don't know. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Jesus was born again. He had to be. He became sin. He was born through Mary the first time and through the resurrection the second time. He was born again. I don't even think that needs comment. But how about this one? How about that we're not only just Christians and people and believers, we're also little gods, that we are actually little gods. How about this one? When I read in the Bible where he says, I am, I just smile and say, yes, I am too. At the heart of the prosperity gospel, the Word of Faith movement, is this doctrine called the little gods doctrine. You don't have a God in you. You are one. You are God's little G. He is big G, and you are little G. You're little G God. Little God theology plays off the Genesis 1, 2, and 3, if you look at creation and the fall, the description of man as being in the image of God in right 
fellowship and communion with God in the garden. Now that's interesting because if everything produces after its own kind, we now see God producing man. Your words have created power. Just as God made the world by speaking words of faith according to these teachers, we can essentially bring into reality or bring into expression what we are hoping for, what we want, because we're the same kind of being as God. These may seem silly, and they should because they are. You know, um, we just just think about just those four videos right there, and you think about what's happening with the authority of God's Word in the Church of the United States, that we no longer need the Old Testament because it's not relevant today. Uh, that Jesus didn't come for salvation, he came to bring the power of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus needed to be born again, and that we're somehow little gods because we're Christians now? I mean, this is what's being done to the Word of God in America. This is what's being done to the authority of the Word of God in the church. Um, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, um, Psalm 11.3 says that if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And the foundation of our faith is very simply the word of God. There's no other found, no, no other foundation that our faith can be built on. There's nothing else in our lives and in our pursuit and what we do uh, that has any value greater than this word. There's nothing that we can pursue that is more valuable than the word of God. And that is our foundation, and that foundation is being eroded, um, and it's being eroded right actually, actually right in front of our own eyes. It's being eroded by society. It's being eroded by government by putting pressure on the church to fold on certain topics so that we no longer apply our lives to the Word of God. Um, that we apply our lives to whatever society wants to to be doing at this point in time. This is this is not a good thing, you know. Um, it's being eroded by uninformed Christians. And by compromising preachers in the pulpits of our own churches around the world. If you think about so many people around the uh, the country right now who attend church, like I said, have a Bible, but they also compromise what the Bible says with what society wants at the time. You know, we want these these people to we want people in certain lifestyles to feel loved and accepted. So what we do is we tell them that God doesn't have a problem with that anymore. When the reality is we're lying to those people because God has a big problem with that because his word is not up for debate. It's his word. The authority of God's word is being removed and replaced with a type of emotionalism and a twisted form of spiritualism that's pretending to be Christianity. So what, so what do we do? What do we do as Christians today, and what can we do to combat what I can only describe as the workings of our enemy? And the first thing that we need to do is make sure that we are on a solid foundation. Now, the title of today's talk is, Can We, uh, can we Believe the Bible in an Age of, of Science? So we're going to be talking a little bit about that, and uh, um, if you've known me any length of time, you kind of probably know where this is going. Um, but the my hope for this podcast, my hope for this this entire this entire uh, uh, effort of of doing these podcasts and putting these videos out, is to help you do just that to find your foundation to make sure that you're on sure footing to help you understand that it's 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 just as important to know why you believe what you believe as it is to know what you believe. And you need to know what it is you believe about various things, but at the same time, you also need to know why you believe those things. And because my church teaches it is not a good reason. 
Because your church teaches it is not a good reason to just believe something. It needs to be found and justified in the word of God itself. So the great thing about this podcast is that as we're going through, I'm not asking you to take my word for it. I'm not, not asking you to believe me. I'm not asking you to just to just agree with whatever I'm saying. And more than likely from time to time, you're going to disagree with me. And more than likely from time to time, you're not going to agree. You're not going to like some of the conclusions that I that I draw from my observations. And all of that is fine. There's there's nothing wrong with that. This is actually a good, healthy thing to do as long as you can explain from the Bible why you have the views and uh, that you have and why you believe what you believe. If you can't explain from the Bible why you believe what you believe, then you have to call into question why you believe what you believe. Now, today we're going to be, get, be uh, begin this journey for this this particular year in the only place that I think we really can, and that is the authority of God's word from the very first word, from the very beginning. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to start looking through some of the most controversial passages in the scriptures. Um, now, uh, but I want to, I've got to do a little work as we're, as we're getting there. So tonight we're kind of laying a foundation for the rest of these conversations. Um, so what do, what do I mean when I say the authority of the word of God? How do, how do we actually define that? Um, what does it mean for God's word to have or be our authority? Okay. So let's look at a couple things. Ask yourself a few questions. Do I believe, do you believe that the Bible is actually God's word to man? Do you, do you actually believe that God, the Bible is, is God's word to man? Do you believe that it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Or was it just a couple of guys, you know, writing some notes in between traveling, traveling, you know, evangelism? Um, was it written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Because if it wasn't written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then really, what's the point of reading it? If it's just their opinion, then it doesn't really matter. Is the Bible true? We're going to get to that a little bit more later, but that's a that's a question. Sometimes we don't we don't wrestle with. I, I think we don't wrestle with it often enough. Do we believe that it's true? How about this? Is it inerrant, meaning it contains no mistakes? That the Bible doesn't get anything wrong. It means what it says, and it's telling us the truth every time. Is it the universal standard in all areas? of morality, life, marriage, faith, etc. Is it our absolute morality? Our absolute set of standards? And is it the absolute and only standard by which I and you will be eternally judged? These are pretty serious questions if you think about it. Now stop and think about the implications of those questions. If the Bible really is the inerrant word of God written to all mankind, to instruct us in all areas of life, morality, sin, salvation, forgiveness, eternity, the list goes on. And it is the only set of standards by which we will be judged. If I am saying that and I believe that is to be that is to be true, which you should believe that that's true, then the way I approach these things, the way I learn them, the way I apply them should demonstrate that to be true. So when I'm, when I'm making that confession, my life should echo that reality. It, it should be the proof that what I'm saying is actually true. What we do and how we live is one thing. What we say and what we confess is another. Just because you say it and confess it 
doesn't make it true. Don't make the mistake of thinking that um, I'm talking about being perfect because I'm really not. Uh, We're not talking about being perfect people, perfect believers, because none of us are perfect and none of us will ever be perfect on this side of eternity. What I'm talking about is the pursuit. What are you pursuing? Okay, check this out. Philippians 2, 12 through 13. It says, therefore, my beloved, if you have all, uh, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Listen to this part. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. For it is God working in you so that you would have the will to do for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation. So that when it's not just, you don't just get saved and poof, you're clean and everything is good and you don't have any, any other problems in your life. Typically speaking, what ends up happening is you're going through your life, you have an encounter with God, you get saved, and all of a sudden things get a lot worse, usually before they get better because you got some issues in your life and God needs to clean those things out. Our walk with Christ is a lifelong pursuit. Paul likens it to a race. And we may run the race in this life, but the finish line is in heaven. The finish line is not on earth. We don't finish the race while we're here. It's a con- it's a continual pursuit. This means that our primary focus has to be the word of God, right? If we're running the race, if, if the race is to learn and apply the word of God to our lives, then the primary focus of that race has to be on the word of God itself and making it the ruling authority in our lives. If the word of God is not the ruling authority of, in our lives, then a person or an idea or uh, or a method is going to become the ruling authority in your life. And if you don't think a method can become the ruling authority in your life, think about people who are connected so heavily to a den- denomination. You know, their entire faith is wrapped around the de- denomination, not the word of God. They're wrapped up in a method, a pattern. But we're not talking about looking at the Bible like it's some sort of book of rules, okay? You don't check these things off, okay? Uh, I've never killed anybody. I honor my mother and father. You know, I don't lie anymore. You know, it's that, 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 that's not what we're talking about. Think about looking at the Word of God as a letter, right? A letter written from the Creator to His lost creation, explaining to that creation how to find our way back to Him. That's how I like to look at it. It's a letter from our creator to his lost creation, helping us find our way back to him. It's a, it's a map of sorts. But like any map, you only have two options. You can either follow it and get to your destination in a timely fashion, or you can try to find your own way and waste a lot of your life just wandering wandering around. Now, the question that we have to ask is, can we trust our map? You know, this is the question we're dealing with tonight. In an age of science, when people say science has has proven the Bible wrong, can we trust our map? Can we trust the Bible in the age of science? Now, nowhere is this question more hotly contested than the book of Genesis. There's, there's no place where this is more of an issue than the book of Genesis, especially Genesis chapter 1, where you have basically the five most hated words in the Bible. In the beginning, God created. Uh, there is no single section of scripture more disputed in and out of the church than the first 11 chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11. They are 
just they cause so many problems for so many people. Um, I know some pastors who just they they just avoid it. They just avoid it altogether because they don't want to deal with it. Many, many Bible teachers and preachers have relegated the first 11 chapters of Genesis to myth, metaphor, and allegory. They would like nothing more than to pretend that Genesis 1 through 11 never existed and just start in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham. But see, there's a problem with this. If the Bible is the word of God, then what is the problem with Genesis 1 through 11? If the Bible is the word of God, then what's the problem with Genesis 1 through 11? I'm really glad you're asking that question. Now, generically speaking, how do we, what do we find in Genesis 1 through 11? What is, what is there that causes so much problems? Uh, so many problems. Now, here's a couple things that we can, can look at. So you have how God created the universe. Some people even have the question, did God create the universe or was it just there? Some people think that God actually just sort of happened upon our universe and happened upon our planet and was like, oh, well, this is a good place to make man, which is a very weird thing to think of. Now, how about this one? How God created the earth. How God created mankind, both male and female, right? How sin came into the world. These are all things found in Genesis 1 through 11. Actually, most of these are found just in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. The promise of redemption and restoration is Genesis 1 through 11. How God judges sin looking at the flood of Noah's day. That's in Genesis 1 through 11. How about this one? How all of the languages and cultures in the world were created, the Tower of Babel, Genesis 1 through 11. And we could list more, but I think you get the point. Now, you think about this. Without Genesis 1 through 11, the only difference between Christianity and other religions is the resurrection. If you take Genesis 1 through 11 out of the picture, the only difference between us and other faiths is the resurrection of Christ, where we believe our faith leader rose back from the dead, which of course he did. And you think, wouldn't that be enough? But the, there's there's a bigger problem here. And th- this is where the authority of God's word all of a sudden becomes very important to us. The problem is that without Genesis 1 through 11, you don't know why Christ went to the cross. You have no basis for the rest of our faith. Now, the rest of our faith, it, uh, taking Genesis 1 through 11 out may, might make the rest of our faith easy, but it also makes it nonsensical. Jesus came, stepped out of heaven, walked the earth of a man, walked the earth as a man, and then went to cross, went to the cross to pay for our sins. What sins? What sin did Jesus go to the cross to pay for? What what's the issue here? What is what is the fundamentals going on here? You think about this, without Genesis 1 through 11, we have no way to do a couple different things. We have no way to define sin. You ever thought about that? Without Genesis 1 through 11, you don't have a way to define sin. Without the garden and the fall of man, sin is just a man-made concept. It is just a man-made construct of good and bad. Without the fall, we don't really know what the issue between us and God is. Now, we also don't know how to define genders. Think about this. If you don't accept the Bible, if you don't accept Genesis 1 through 11, then you have no basis for what we would call genders, male and female. We know male and female because God created them male and female. He created them. How about this one? We can't explain why Jesus came. What is the fall of man? If Jesus came to to make a way for us to come back to the Father... 
well, what if I don't have sin? What if I don't have sin in my life? What if I've never done anything bad? What if I've just been a good angelic type person my entire life? Why do I need Christ to bring me back to God when I never left him to begin with? I don't understand what the disconnect here is. You see, you can't answer that question without Genesis 1 through 11. Can I just be a good person and go to heaven? That argument is actually valid when you take Genesis 1 through 11 out of the picture. Excuse me. We could talk about more, but I think you get the point. Now, Genesis 1 through 11 is not simply a part of our Bible. It is actually a foundational element of our Bible. It's what a lot of the major doctrines that we focus on rest on. They rest on the separation between creation and creator. Now, the sad part is the atheist community seems to be more aware of this than a lot of people within the church because they know, and this is this is actually published material on their part, they know that if they can get you as a believer to walk away from creation, Genesis 1 through 11 especially, they can eventually worm you away from your faith. They can erode the foundation that your faith is built on, which is the authority of the word of God, if they can get you to walk away from the biblical account of creation, Genesis 1 through 11. All around the world, this is actually working very well. There is a massive portion of the church that has essentially let go of the historicity of the majority of the Old Testament, especially Genesis. There are entire denominations that have declared the bulk of the Old Testament simply just metaphor, literally stories made up to make us feel good about ourselves. And you know, to talk about how God and, and man can interact and how, how God might respond in certain situations, but they're, they didn't actually happen. They're all metaphor. They're all allegory. It's just, it's, 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 it's not that big of a deal. This is a problem, and not a small problem. This is a very, very large problem. Now, the reason for the move away from Genesis, the, the reason for the move away from the authority of God's word from beginning to end can be placed squarely on the shoulders of one man, and that man is Charles Darwin. You can actually trace this back to the explosion of Darwinism. A couple, uh, I think it's 150 or 200 years ago at this point. Uh, yeah, around 1850, so it's about 150 years ago. So Charles Darwin, if you're not familiar with who he is, he's the man who came up with the, th- with the theory of universal common descent. If you're not actually familiar with the, th- with the theory on its own, it basically states this, that all life on earth arose from a single common ancestor via undirected mutation and adaptation. Let me give you a layman's term, uh, a, a layman's view of what that actually means. You are a cosmic accident. There is no definable purpose for your beginning. There is no definable purpose for your being, and there will be no definable purpose in your end. You are a mistake of random chemical combinations. There is no purpose in your life, and therefore there will be no purpose in your death. That essentially is Darwinism. You see, because a mistake can't have value. A mistake doesn't have purpose. A mistake doesn't have a goal. So while you're here on this earth, all you're really doing is consuming resources that that's all you are according to darwinism now over the coming weeks what we're going to be doing is getting into this issue of creation and evolution this is something i typically will do around this time of the year Um, and we're going to look at each of the claims from the perspective of scripture as well as modern science and what you're going to find out is modern science actually backs up the bible the more science progresses the more we start to realize that the bible has had it right all along it's pretty amazing to see this. Now, today, I want to look at 
the first day of creation. We're gonna we're just gonna touch on a few parts of this, um, and I want to talk a little bit about one major concept um, that I think lays a beautiful foundation for this. Uh, I think it'll be uh, I think it should be a lot of fun. So when we look at Genesis chapter one. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Check us out. So uh, chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 reads like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So in the, uh, so the evening and the morning were the first day. Okay. Now, in case you've never actually seen, um, if you've never actually seen the Hebrew version of, uh, Genesis, Genesis 1 verses 1 through 5, uh, let me see if this is gonna come up correctly. Yeah, there you go. So that is what it actually looks like in Hebrew. Now, if you just read the the first line, uh, Genesis chapter one verse one, it reads Bereshit bala Elohim et Hashemayim ve'et haaretz. That's that's the way it was. It would be pronounced. Um, don't don't think of think of me as anyone who really knows what they're talking about. I took a few Hebrews classes, and we focused on Genesis. Uh, so it was a, it was a lot of fun for me because it was a book that I absolutely adore. Um, now, one of the unfortunate mistakes that we find in a lot of pulpits is that we approach the Bible, especially as Westerners, we're, we're 21st century Western Americans, um, and we, we speak a language that's really not that old, and it changes constantly. And one of the mistakes that we make, and a, lot of, and a mistake that is often made in the pulpit, is because we have translated English Bibles, we make the mistake of thinking that the Bible was written, what we're reading was written to 21st century Western American Christians. English-speaking American Christians. And, and the truth of the matter is it just wasn't. Uh, it just wasn't. It's translated, but it's not just a translation of words. It's also a translation of history. It's a translation of culture. It's a translation of comparison of things that we may not even know or understand because they're relating it to the people that it was orig- originally written to, not necessarily relating it to people in modern times. So there's a lot of work that we need to do in order to properly understand this book so that we don't pull things out of it that aren't really there. You see this happening all the time. People read it and they think, oh, well, the English word means this. What the English word means is irrelevant. What did, what does the word in Hebrew or Greek uh, mean? How is it? How, what did it mean to the people it was originally written to? You know, um, the only correct way to read and interpret scripture is through the lens of those that it was originally intended. All of the references, if you think about it, the culture, the context, it all applies to them in their time, in their normal life setting. So we need to look at it from their perspective. Taking things into consideration, for example, like did the Hebrews have one word for universe? No, they didn't. They used a combination of words. Uh, did they have a a, um, a word for space-time? No, they didn't. Um, did they have a term for cosmology? Did they have a term for biology, chemistry, biochemistry, zoology? Did they have these terms? No, they didn't. They described them in other ways. So we have to do a little bit of work on our part in order to get the understanding that we need to out of the passages. So simply knowing the the being able to translate between 
one language and another isn't enough. There's more work that needs to be done. So if you, if you think about this, simply knowing the answers to questions like that answers a lot of questions. You know, um, if you think about Genesis 1, is the Bible actually claiming that God created the entire universe at one shot? And the answer is actually yes. You know, when it says and God created the heavens and the earth, those two words together create what is called a merism. Um, and basically that is a, that is a term where you put two things together and together they have a larger meaning. So if you were to, if you, to put that in modern context, if you were to say, man, I worked day and night. Now, we know that day and night are two different things. And if you just take those as separate words, then you can actually pull that apart. Well, what did you work only during the day and then you went home for dinner and you only, you did, you worked only, you know, uh, and you worked at night, you know, but did you, did you come home or did you take, or did you just literally work 24 hours? We know that day and night meant you worked an entire day. You worked an entire period. So we know that that word has an extended meaning because of the way the, the words are combined. We understand that. Hebrews understood that this passage, because heaven and earth were together, it literally means all that is. So in the very beginning, when it says, in the beginning, God created all that is, it's not that God eventually created or God worked on creation or when he got around to creating. It literally says when that God brought into existence all that is. That, that immediate piece right there. Just knowing the language helps you understand that. It clarifies things for you very quickly. Now, in this passage, we have a dilemma, and it's a very interesting dilemma um, that tends to trip up a lot of people. And uh, we're going to uh, we're going to kind of wrap things up tonight with this dilemma, and we're going to be moving into other things this week uh, in, in the following week. <laughs> you know, I can tell just. I can tell that I've been I've been off for for an extended period of time because I I'm, I'm moving way too fast and I apologize for that. I'm going to slow down here a little bit. Um, so if we stop stop and think about when you when we think in that God spoke light into dis, into existence, God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. So in verse three, God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. But we have a problem, and this is the dilemma. That the sun, moon, and the stars were created on day four. So on day one, God says, let there be light, and there was light. And he said the light was good. He divided the light day and night. Well, wait a second. This is, this is a, this is a problem. If the sun, moon, and stars were created on day four, where the heck did the light come from? What, what are we, what are we talking about? This, this, this idea that there could be an evening and a morning and light without sun, moon, and stars is very difficult to understand, and it's actually caused some people to say, see, this is why the Old Testament is just metaphor, because if you look at this from a scientific viewpoint, it doesn't make any sense. Okay. Now, if we stop and think about this just for a minute, the issue actually resolves itself if we actually start looking at what is happening. So let me walk you through this process here. If you think about this glass, okay, it's just a small glass, if you think about this glass as the universe, right? I'm creating this. If I'm creating this glass, then I'm not in the glass, right? I'm outside of the glass. I'm actually bringing in elements and I'm actually forming them into this. Therefore, I am in control of this. Now, I have to make this out of something, right? So 
if you think about the makeup of the visible universe, what we have, the universe is made up of a few very simple things, energy, matter, space, and time. You can argue for other things, but those are four basic things that the universe is all, is made up out of. Energy, matter, space, and time. Now, energy is fairly simple to understand. It's what makes things happen. Um, if you pick up your hand, you have expended energy, right? If you eat something, you are both expending energy and creating energy at the same time. So energy is the, is, is the, the currency of our, of our universe. Nothing happens without energy being either created or destroyed. It's, it's, it's a constant give and take. Now, matter, excuse me, isn't that terribly complicated either. If you can touch it and feel it, then it's made out of matter. Everything in the universe is made up out of matter, even things that you actually can't see. You breathe in oxygen. You're actually breathing in matter. You're breathing in molecules. You can't see them with the naked eye, but you're actually breathing them in. They're there, but we can't comprehend them unless we are looking at something under a microscope, a very powerful microscope. Space, that may sound weird. You think, well, is space really a thing? Well, it, it, space actually is a thing, and it, it, space is actually something that you have to create when you're in the process of creating. Um, our universe has edges. If you think about this, this cup has edges. It has boundaries. It's got borders. Now, the person creating this cup, if I'm the one creating this cup, I decide where the edges are. Therefore, I have decided how much space, how much room this is. this actually takes up. Space, our visible universe, can be measure, measured. Therefore, it is a thing. It is an element of creation. Now, time is the interesting one. Time is the one that kind of gets away from us. Time is not a creation. This is this is this is this is the weird weird uh, uh, dilemma here. Time is not a not a intentional creation. Time is the result of creation. Okay. Now you think about this. If God created the universe, that means he is, he exists outside of the universe. Uh, if uh, God is not part of the physical material. Uh, the, the physical material universe that we exist in, he cannot be both in the universe and the creator of the universe at the same time. That, that's, uh, that, that would be ridiculous. Uh, that would be like saying A and not A at the same time. If God was actually within the universe while he was creating it, then he would actually be part of the universe. Because he's the creator of the universe, by definition, he has to exist outside of this physical plane of existence that we live in. So he's not bound by things like physics or gravity. He's not bound by space, matter, energy, or time. He's outside of all of those things. He's not bound by the physical limitations that limit us. He is outside of them. He has no beginning and no end. If you think just think about the concept of time, he has no beginning and no end. So time is an irrelevant concept to him. Once this physical world was created, time began time exists in the whenever matter is present time is also a constant as well because that matter has to exist in something that might be a little brainy that uh, for uh for, for some but don't don't worry about it it's not that you don't have to sit there and try to figure it out but the basic idea is if matter is present present so is time because matter has to exist in something it can't just be outside of time matter itself can't be outside of time it has to be inside of time so we measure time how if you think about this if the physical world was created when time began this this causes a problem because time time only exists if it can be measured right so there has to be increments so we have to be able to tell 
yesterday from today or today from yesterday? How do we know where we are? Time is measurable, okay? So we measure time based on one thing. And this, this, is, this is the thing I think is so fantastic about Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. We measure all of our time. Every unit of measurement that we have correlating to time comes down to one thing. The length of time it takes the earth to spin once. Everything that we do is based on that. Everything that we do is based on that rotation of the world on its axis. We go from day to night to day. We call that 24 hours. We've broken that time frame up into 24 segments. We've broken that 24 segments up into what we call minutes, and we've broken those minutes up into what we call seconds, and you can even get all the way down to nanoseconds, and, and there's even much, much smaller motions of me- measurements of times, uh, time as well. But they're all based on fractions of the 24-hour time frame, which is what it takes for the Earth to spin around one time. So if you think about this, is the amount of time that it takes the Earth to complete one revolution dependent on the existence of the sun, moon, and stars? Think about that carefully for a second. Is the amount of time it takes for the world to spin once dependent on the existence of the sun, moon, and stars? And of course, the answer is no, it's not. It's dependent on the speed that it's turning. So when God created the universe and God created the heavens and the earth and God said, let there be light, essentially what we're talking about is the delineation of time. The light will be day the uh, um, uh, and, the, and the, the evening will be night. The darkness will be night. That is the delineation of what is to come, how we are going to be measuring time, how we are going to be measuring the length of our existence. And God looks at that measurement and he says, this is good. God put in place for us at the very beginning of everything how we would gauge everything. Even when we look at galaxies far, far away, we look at them in terms of light years. We measure them in a a ratio of time given to us by God on day one of creation. I think that is absolutely stupendous. But people get caught up because we're using the term light and dark. And when we think about that, we're thinking about one day. Now, if you think about the, the term, um, for, uh, for that, when, when he says, um, he called the, uh, he called the light day and the darkness he called night. So, so listen to the ways his phrased. So the evening and morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the first day. The first turn was the first day. That's pretty awesome. It's pretty amazing how God works this out. So when God created the physical material universe and he created the planet that we would be created on, the very next thing he did was he set in place what we would use to measure our entire lives. If you think about this, even all the way back in Genesis, what do we have all the way through all the way through, honestly, till the time of Jesus, we have genealogies. Now, in the days of Genesis, we still have people's age in years. Years are the amount of time that it takes the earth to travel around the sun. Well, those are, that, that time is still gauged in days, in one 
day. We're going to be next week. We're going to be talking about how do we know that a day is a day? Uh, because that seems to be a question in a lot of pulpits today too, which it, it shouldn't be. If you know anything about the language, all of a sudden that, that question answers itself. Um, but we're going to deal with it next week so we can actually be very firm in our understanding of this. And this is all part of gathering around a foundation that we can be firm on and we can understand and we can have complete and total faith in. Not only did God, not only does the Bible say right off in the beginning that God created all there is, He also created the units of measure, the units that we use to measure time, to measure our age, to measure the dates, to measure the seasons. All of these things were given to us in the very beginning of creation. To me, that sets a foundation that, that I can build on. Because in reality, if we can't believe the Bible from the very first page, how can you believe the very last? If you can't believe, if God is lying to us from the very beginning, how can we put any faith in what Jesus says he did on the cross? If the beginning of the book is just a fairy tale, then how do we know that the cross is not also a fairy tale? You see, the Bible works together. It is one account it is the letter written by the creator to his lost creation, teaching us how to get back to him. And we can have complete and total faith in this thing. We can have complete and total faith in every word from the very beginning. In the beginning, God created. I have no doubt in my mind that that is exactly what happened. I have no doubt in my mind that the, that as, as the uh, days of creation go through and God has, has told us how he did it, how he divided it, how life works, all of that stuff is, is perfectly reliable, and it is exactly the way that God set it up to be. I have every faith in that. <sighs> hey, not bad. About 50 minutes. Of course, about three of those minutes, I had my mic, my mic turned off, so um, I felt about that much bigger than I am right now. Um, so um, I don't know. Uh, I know there's a few few of you on right now. I didn't know if any of you had the ability to comment. I know on YouTube comments can be a little bit difficult, but if you're on, um, if you want to pop up a question at some point in time, that would be great. Um, if we're going through and you're having a hard time trying to figure out how to use the comment stuff, get a hold of me in, uh, in, in another way. You can uh, message me on Facebook or whatever, and we'll try to figure out how to make this easier for you. If you are not um, on YouTube, if you don't have your own, if you don't have a uh, a YouTube subscription yourself put one together it's not that difficult it really does help channels like mine um as we move forward and try to try to grow this thing um yeah and uh, hopefully uh, uh next week i think we're gonna we're gonna be right back here at the same time wednesday six to seven uh we're gonna be talking about trusting the bible in the age of science we're gonna be looking at the days of creation we're really gonna be digging into this thing um uh I've always known I'm not much of a preacher. I'm a teacher, and this is this is what I really want to do. Uh, I think this is what God is asking me to do, and I have a lot of fun doing it. I hope you've enjoyed it. Do me a favor if you can, hit the like button and um, uh, share this video with other people. This will be up on Facebook sometime tomorrow. Uh, thank you guys all for being here. Lord bless you. Have a fantastic night. We'll see you next week. <laughs>